I and all past and current members of the ACSS team would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians of each of our delegate hubs where many of our listeners will be based. You are listening to the podcast produced by the Australian Crisis Simulation Summit. We are a volunteer student-led organisation who create and run complex futuristic and alternative crisis simulations in a national effort to help create the next generation of national security experts and leaders. We hope you enjoy and learn from this podcast. This is a moment that requires leadership. China signing security pact and looking to establish a base. People think I don't like China. I love China. The Pacific region has listed climate change as its number one threat. And so Friends AUKUS is born. With a failure to invest in renewables. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I just have two more words to say. Obama out. Today on the ASSS podcast, I am joined by the one and only Meg Tapia. Meg is a seasoned national security and foreign policy practitioner with over 20 years of operational experience, including 16 years as a diplomat. For her efforts, she has been awarded the Australian Operational Service Medal and the NATO Medal for her civilian service in Afghanistan, as well as several departmental awards during her time with DFAT. She also co-hosted the Women in National Security series on the National Security Podcast, which I do recommend you go and check out. Meg is currently the Managing Director and Owner of Novexus a national security advisory firm helping government and corporate clients navigate risk and complexity. In our discussion today, Meg and I discuss what it is like to deal with real crises. Meg explores three experiences she had while working overseas. That's two in Vanuatu and one in Afghanistan. She then explains the key similarities and differences running through each one. But before we get into my conversation with Meg, a big shout out to the ANU College of Law for making this podcast episode possible. The ANU College of Law is one of the best places to study law in Australia, and they provide a range of undergraduate and postgraduate study options. Those listening to this podcast might be interested in completing a Juris Doctor or a Master of International Law and Diplomacy. For more information, head to law.anu.edu.au and begin studying in a supportive, student-focused environment where the teaching allows you to see the law in action. That's all from me. I hope you enjoyed this discussion. Meg, it's so great to have you on the podcast today. I just want to get straight into it. What does crisis management theory have to say about how we should prepare for and react during crisis events and what even is a crisis? Thanks, Jackson. And it's so good to be here. And um, congratulations to you and everybody um, at the uh, Australian Crisis Simulation Summit. I think this is a really fantastic initiative. There's a lot in that question. So let's kind of take a step back to begin with and answer the question, well, what is a crisis? So it is fundamentally an unexpected event, something that's happened suddenly and sometimes you can predict it, um, like a natural disaster event, like a cyclone, for example, but more often than not, it's not. And so it's an immediate, uh, intense event. There's lots of unknowns. It's a distraction from business as usual. And this experience is characterised by uh, very fluid decision-making, fast-moving events, uh, a lot of unknowns and complexity, there's a lack of clarity, and because of this, there's really heightened levels of stress and anxiety for for everybody. Um, There's an additional element here that I think is important, and that is that a crisis event has the potential to threaten an organisation's reputation, operations or stakeholders, and here I'm including staff. So there's different crisis 
situations that you can experience and they all have a different kind of emphasis. So for example, a consular crisis, a natural disaster uh, or something like a terrorist attack, you're going to be thinking about a threat to life. You're going to be thinking about the people who are involved and and affected in that crisis event. Um, And we see a lot of these in the foreign affairs space and in international relations. But there's also other types of crises like, for example, a food safety crisis or a product recall. And you might remember... Back in 2018, there was the strawberries uh, back in, what was it, Queensland and New South Wales that had sewing needles inside. Mm. That is an example of a food safety crisis. It was intense, unexpected, um, and it was very fast-moving events. But the emphasis there is different. It's about containing the incident. Uh, There's a lot of issues in relation to public trust and public confidence. You're looking at your supply chains and you're potentially thinking about lawsuits. Um, Other types of events that we're seeing uh, in the crisis space more currently are things like cyber and data breaches. We're seeing a lot of those and there the emphasis is on uh, customers and reputation and we're also seeing a lot of workplace and leadership crises. So allegations of discrimination or harassment or unethical behaviour or, or leadership being embroiled in a scandal. These are all examples of crises events. But the thing is with all of these events is that they do have some elements that are in common and this is where crisis theory is really useful. So I think crisis management boils down to kind of four key elements and one constant that I personally think is really important. So the four key elements are Uh, preparation, coordination, action and recovery, right? I think a lot of people go into a crisis situation thinking it's all about the action, the response, what do you do? But There's actually a lot that you can do in advance and there are things that you also need to do after the crisis event is over to make sure um, that you're really managing the full lifespan of the crisis. Yeah, and I think that's part of what the ACSS is trying to do um, or trying to promote anyway is that preparing for crises before they happen or at least getting into the habit of of doing so through simulations. In terms of your real experience, you were involved in a major crisis in Vanuatu, multiple actually. Um, I know you've just spoken a bit how they can be international and they can also be on the more micro level business firms in individual states or towns. In terms of that crisis in Vanuatu, could you tell me a little bit about what that was like, how you prepared, how did you coordinate, how did you act and then how did you recover after? Yeah, so um, there's two major crisis situations I can think of in my time in Vanuatu. So I was posted there between uh, 2015 and 2019. And the two I can think of that really stay in my mind are Tropical Cyclone Donna, which happened in 2017. And the other was a major consular event um, with a very serious bus crash involving Australian tourists um, that happened about six months after I got there, so in June 2016. And these two events... Um, emphasise different elements of crisis management. So in the case of Donna, uh, the emphasis here was very much on preparation, planning and coordination. So the action itself happened, or the response action itself happened because of all of the preparation and planning and coordination that we'd done. And then, of course, we went into the recovery phase, which was really important. The consular event was because it was so immediate and urgent really straight into that coordination and action pretty much straight away Um, and we had our plans in place but we didn't have the opportunity to really pull them out dust them off and and prepare for that because it was such an Mm. unexpected incident. I want to linger on Donna for a bit. What was that preparation 
process like? How much, how much advance notice did you have of that event? And what was the sort of conversations you were having before that happened? Did you know what was going to happen or what was that? What was that? Yeah, so we, we knew – well, so let me step back a bit. Yep. So Vanuatu, because of its location in the southwest Pacific, is prone to seasonal cyclones. So mm. it gets about two or three a year. So we know that we're going to get them, right? And it also sits on the Pacific Ring of Fire where there's two tectonic plates that meet. Um, so it, it's also prone to frequent earthquakes and volcanic activity. So it is from a natural – disaster perspective, a pretty high natural disaster zone area. So we know that. Um, during my posting, there were many cyclones every year, um, but but uh, Donna was the strongest um, off-season cyclone in the Southern Hemisphere at that time. So it was pretty significant. Um, so there have been others that have been Category 5 events and your listeners might remember Tropical Cyclone Pam in 2015 and Tropical Cyclone Harold more recently in 2020 and that came along with two earthquakes. Mm. So you know that this is going to happen when you're working in these sorts of environments. I'll speak to the Donna timeline so that you can see how quickly events move and, and how much you need to be adaptable. So the storm formed over Fiji on the 1st of May in 2017 and within 24 hours it had become a category one cyclone so that moved pretty quickly over the next four days it began to move westward so from Fiji towards Vanuatu New Caledonia and Australia um, and had by this time become a category four so within four days it had gone from cat one to cat four it's pretty fast in Port Vila the capital of Vanuatu where, where I lived and worked we were already preparing because we knew that cyclones can be unpredictable and this one was headed for us. Um, So we pulled out our business continuity plans and our disaster management plans. We paused business as usual and the whole High Commission sprang into action, rolled up their sleeves and began to prepare for a cyclone that could be coming for us even though I think we were all hoping that it wouldn't. So... In this kind of event, in this planning stage, we know that it's coming, we're anticipating it. Um, And so we're thinking about all the preparation that we need to do to get the High Commission and our properties ready, but we're also thinking about local staff because, of course, we have local staff working at the High Commission and they have family and kids and homes and family members have businesses, so they need time to prepare for themselves as well as support the High Commission in Mm. their roles and in their jobs to prepare the premises. So it's not just us, it is an entire community effort and we're all thinking about things that we're going to need, so potable water, um, mainline communications, backup communications food and medical supplies. And at this time, while, while we have the opportunity, we're also thinking about whether we can evacuate people. Mm-hmm. So can we evacuate family members, for example, back to Australia to just wait it out for a few days and then come back? Hopefully nothing's happened, mm-hmm. but you've got to give people the chance to do that. But there's some things you need to consider in doing that. So are the airlines flying? Mm. Is it even safe to fly? Because when you're living in an island nation, there's no other way Mm. to get out, really, right? Um, So we're thinking about all of this um, during this period, in that four-day period. So over the next couple of days, we are watching the map and we're watching the cyclone trajectory and we are all trying to guess the direction because... 
that's what you do. Um, and at this point, Donna is uh, in the ocean southwest of Vanuatu and north of New Caledonia. So it is travelling through the ocean right between in the middle of the two countries. And I think you can Google actually the trajectory online so people can see where that was. And at this point, Donna is travelling northwest and it's starting to weaken. So we're hopeful that actually we're going to get by and it's going to be okay and it's not going to affect us. But over the next two days, so by the 8th of May, we saw Donna re-intensify into a Category 5 and start to change direction. From going northwest away from us, it began heading north and then northeast right towards us. Yeah. So we were all a bit concerned. Um, it did not make landfall as a Category 5, but because of its trajectory and because of its intensity, the storm that we felt on the island, um, both in Port Vila and then across the, the island chain of Vanuatu, was the equivalent of about a, a Category 2, 3 storm, which is really significant. So at the time of the cyclone, I was at home with my two children and um, we had the cyclone shutters down and it sounded like a freight train coming through the house for hours mm. on end. So I can only imagine the experience of... of a cyclone five coming through your home um, and I do know people who've had that experience and it must be incredibly yeah, well. traumatic. Entire villages across the northern islands sought refuge in caves because that was the best place for them to be and when we came out of the cyclone event um, we learnt that um, buildings had been destroyed or had the roofs ripped off, um, there had been incredibly heavy rainfall that had led to flooding there were landslides that um, caused structural damage on the roads. Uh, crops had been damaged. Water was contaminated. The comms were down. Uh, power lines were down. So it was a pretty serious event. So yeah. what do you do when you come out of that? So as soon as it's safe to do so, you begin the immediate response once you're actually able to come out of your home or wherever it is that you're taking um, safe shelter. So everyone in the High Commission knows their job in advance because we've all prepared and we all know the priorities. And the priorities are safety of life, the safety and security of property. We want to confirm food, water and essential supplies. We want to confirm our communication lines because through all of this, we have a responsibility to keep Canberra informed. And of course, we've got loved ones that might have evacuated and they want to know what's going on too. So in all of this, we're looking after ourselves, our people, uh, the High Commission property, but then we're also having to engage with the host government on potential bilateral assistance. So how big is the damage? We're making assessments and we're advising Canberra on how we can help is it safe for planes to come in? Um, what does the country need? What kind of emergency relief supplies? Um, we're making an assessment about do they need hygiene supplies, food, shelter, water purification systems, etc. Um, and in this moment, it is very, it is a very immediate, intense um, period with lots of unknowns um, and moving parts. But I think it's that preparation and everybody knowing their role in advance that really helps you just get through it. Mm. I think it would definitely be comforting to be working with people that are kind of not losing it because they've had that preparation. I just have a question about during that period, 
um, before and maybe as the crisis was kind of ramping up, as Donna was nearing, what was the sort of communication that you were receiving from Canberra? Um, what, what does that sort of look like and what are they looking at? Yeah, so Canberra is really interested in um, making sure that we've got everything that we need in order to um, effectively manage both ourselves, the High Commission property, and um, we have the support to then help the country to recover post-cyclone. So they're, they're wanting to know that we're okay, that we're prepared, that we've planned, um, and they want to know in particular about the safety and well-being of um, staff and other key stakeholders. Yeah, right. And what sort of assistance did Vanuatu want? Like, what was the Vanuatu government saying um, or communicating to Canberra, if you know, um, about what they might need or, or yeah, how, how, they, how they could utilise Australia's assistance in recovering, if indeed they did want that? Yeah, so it changes from event to event um, depending on how it's been impacted. So thinking about Vanuatu, it's an island chain. Mm-hmm. There are some... Um, communities that are in very far outlying areas and so it might take several days to actually find out, Mm. uh, to be able to communicate with them because comms are down and then to find out what it is that they need. Mm. So it does depend but it's usually around the humanitarian elements and and this has usually got to do with people's welfare. So usually it's things like shelter, Mm. uh, potable water, making sure that, that we have decontamination um, pods to, to help to help with the water um, and occasionally it might be things like food particularly if crops have been damaged and we need um, to provide food for an immediate period of time. Yeah right was this always the case that there was always like a high level of preparation for these sort of crises or like I'm not sure when this sort of high level preparation for these sort of things began but yeah would you be able to speak to that or not? No, not really? Yeah look I think when I was there it was already in yeah. place and I imagined that planning had and preparation had begun from the first time that they experienced a cyclone Mm. because you know that this is a recurring event Mm. and you know that it's going to happen every year so why wouldn't you plan Mm. yeah i'm just wondering also about the increasing frequency that those events will happen um, into the future what sort of resilience do these countries have for massive events like you said two to three times each year what about a world where that's maybe four five six is there? Is, what, what does that even look like? You, you've barely recovered from the last event and you've got another one coming. I'm not really sure I want to think about what yeah, a world like yeah. that looks like. Um, that would be incredibly difficult and in that kind of world then you're not, you're not going from crisis to recovery and having the opportunity to become resilient and, and to recover, you're just going from crisis to crisis. Yeah. So it really changes the dynamic. And as you know, I spent some time in Afghanistan and that really is an environment in which you are in a state of constant elevated crisis because of the nature of the war zone. Um, and then individual crisis events happen and everything just gets elevated once again. Now, I would hate to think that um, more frequent cycling events are going to lead to something of that scale and magnitude as you have in, in a war zone. But I can imagine mm. that people would be feeling just really battered, mm. no pun intended, uh, by having those sorts of events happen constantly mm. because it affects every part of your livelihood. Sure. Yeah, and every part of society, I would say. Like, yeah. Anyway. So I want to move on now to the, the bus crash that involved Australian tourists. You said that was more about the coordination, the action side of the crisis management aspects uh, theory. So could you speak a little bit about that? What was the context? What happened? What was the response like? Yeah, so that, that a consular event, first of all, I should say consular events happen all the time. It's just it's the nature of the world that we live in that, that these things happen. 
and they happen overseas to our citizens. So DFAT has diplomatic trade and aid functions and it also has a really important consular function. It is expected by society and our population that they will get support and help if they get into trouble overseas. And that's what the consular function is about. Usually it's things like lost passports, maybe someone's been arrested or perhaps there's been a death overseas and you're helping the family to repatriate the body back to Australia. Um, but from time to time there are accidents and those accidents are quite serious. So, Southeast Asia and the Pacific, they're very popular for Australian travellers. And uh, during my time in Vanuatu in, in June of 2016, we had a group of 12 Australians ranging from children to the very elderly um, visit Vanuatu on a cruise ship. There's lots of cruise ships that visit Vanuatu. It's a really popular place. It's really beautiful. So, why wouldn't you? It's a lovely way to holiday. Now, this group of Australians took a day trip to some tourist spots outside of the capital and on their drive back there was a really tragic head-on collision um, with an oncoming bus. Three Ni Vanuatu locals died in that accident and 10 Australians were very seriously injured and again your listeners can hop online if they um, would like to learn more about this event though I should warn you there is some graphic content in terms of uh, the photographs that are online. So consular events like this are, as you said, immediate. You really spring into action. But you've also got to be aware of the complicated environment in which you're working while you're in this heightened state of of wanting to jump into action and help. So why is it complicated? Well, you've got lots of stakeholders. So emergency services are dealing with the scene of the accident and the people who've been injured. In this case, you've got the cruise ship company that is responsible for passenger welfare, trying to gather information and find out what's going on. You've got the local authorities, including the police, who are also trying to uh, piece together the incident. Then you've got local government officials who might be overseeing coordination um, and they're concerned because, of course, they're managing an incident that's involving foreign nationals. Mm -hmm. So this might not be so good from a tourism perspective, which is a big part of the economy. Then you might have uh, towing and recovery services who've been called to move the damaged vehicles. You've got insurance companies that need to be notified. There's local bystanders who've witnessed the event and they want to help or maybe they want to document the event. Um, And then with an event like this, soon enough you've got media interest and it becomes a breaking news story and you've got to just be aware of that. So this type of crisis is contained in scale compared to something like a natural disaster. It is much more localised in terms of the number of people who've been impacted, but the urgency is much higher because Mm. here you've got lives at stake. So there can be a lot of chaos, there's many unknowns, decision-making is truly fluid, there are heightened levels of stress and anxiety. You might have staff or uh, members of the public who are in shock. Um, And I think going into something like this, it's really important to remember that everyone reacts and copes differently to this type of event and not everyone might feel comfortable or equipped to participate in an action effort. So um, what do you do if you're managing this kind of event? I think the most important thing to keep in your mind is that you want to preserve and protect 
life and that's why emergency services is there. And if you are in a consular event in which you are a representative of a foreign government, you have to be mindful that each country has procedures for emergency response and you need to respect their approach. So we cannot be overlaying what we do Mm. simply because they're Australians. We've got to let them do their job. But we do have a role too as as an embassy or a high commission. We have a responsibility to provide consular and emergency support. And so when I talk about action, that's the action that I'm talking about. Mm. Might I ask what role did you take in that crisis? What were the sort of things you were dealing with? Yeah, so... I had actually just arrived from overseas that morning on a flight. I wasn't aware that this event had occurred. And when I got to the High Commission, I remember walking into the High Commissioner's office and seeing him looking quite stressed and asking what's going on. And he briefed me and said, "Um, we've had this incident. Um, I need you to help. And I mean, of course. right? So so I'm quite comfortable, quite happy to participate in an event like that. And I said, well... What can I do? Um, Where do you need me? And we had a conversation about what that looked like and then I got into action. So for me, that was going to the airport to help process the victims of the of the car crash who needed to be medevaced out. So it was being the local liaison point of contact for these Australians who needed to be medevaced with the medevac company, um, with the emergency services organisation, which is a volunteer ambulance organisation mm. in Vanuatu, um, that was bringing the 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 passengers to the airport and then liaising with um, immigration and customs to be able to actually get them out in the case uh, so in most cases we sent the passengers to uh, Brisbane yeah. we medevac them on emergency flights to Brisbane um, but in the case of a young boy and his family they were medevaced to Namia mm. um, so 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 that was my role in in that event in terms of the action component yeah right I'm interested because you said before there was so many stakeholders I'm wondering what the approach is Obviously, the high commissioner is the leader. Is it kind of like almost like a checklist of things that like needs to be like looked into, or what's that process like of, of of taking stock of what needs to be done, so that he can then say to you, "This is what I need you doing." Um, yeah, so that's um that's a really good question, and that has to do with the coordination element of crisis management, right? So. Crisis management involves various stakeholders, both internal and external to the organisation. And what you need to have is an effective coordination mechanism. So you need to have that decision-making role and that accountability. And you mentioned there the High Commissioner as being the ultimate decision-maker. Absolutely, that's the case in that example. But you need to know all of this in advance. So if the High Commissioner is out of the country, then it's a charge, right? Who's responsible? Is that person on leave? Are they contactable? How quickly can they get to the office? You want to... You wanna have thought all all of this through and you want to have some clear communication channels so that when a crisis does happen, um, you are able to to cooperate, collaborate and act um, really quickly and, and have a unified response. So you do need someone who knows what are all the moving parts and um, what are the communication mechanisms in order to move those pieces. Who is that person that knows all the moving parts? Is that the High Commission, just for clarity? Usually, yeah. So it really depends on the nature of the crisis. So often there will be a crisis committee that is set up to manage the situation. And so while the most senior person will be the ultimate decision maker, um, I think a good crisis leader, in, in my view, will take 
feedback and advice from a range of people mm. in order to make an informed decision about what to do next. Obviously, you spoke before about, and it ties into how there's sorts of moving parts. I'm assuming that you know information flows and communication is highly important, but I understand that there might be the risk that somebody has to deal with all that incoming information. Um, could you speak to like how individuals during crises do or should deal with that high influx of incoming information while it's evolving? It's obviously dealing with uncertainty and also high volume of information. Mm. It can be quite, I guess, stressful. <laughs> it can. It can be really overwhelming. And I can certainly think of a number of examples where I've felt that myself. I think part of it is, I don't know how this is going to sound, but it's trying not to be overwhelmed mm. by that and trying to pause and breathe mm. and you know try to evaluate the breadth of information that you have in front of you in order to distill it and decipher it and mm. that might not be your role as the leader of that crisis you might appoint someone mm. who's you know who you trust and who's very good at that and doing that analysis to evaluate the range of information that's coming in and and make an initial kind of call about the importance and relative priority of that information. Mm. You spoke also about how you don't want to overlay the Australian response onto another country's response. But I know there is quite a lot of collaboration between countries in dealing with crises of all natures, of all sorts. Mm. Can you speak to like what are the sort of things that Australia and other, other countries do to kind of make sure that our response systems kind of complement each other? And does that occur to the extent that it should? What are the issues with that? Yeah, that's a really good question. So each, well, at least all the countries that I've been in, there's always really close collaboration on a bilateral basis mm. between Australia and, and, and the host country. Um, and in terms of crisis and crisis management, you have, I mean, part of your role as a diplomat is to really build uh, a, a wide range of really deep contacts across both the local government and the community. Mm. And the purpose of doing that isn't just so you can, you know, mingle and attend mm. events. Yeah, enjoy it's, the free. That's injuries, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's, it's because there may be a time where you need to call on those contacts in order to take action, to understand a situation, to uh, deal with an issue that's happened and you can only do that if you've gone to the effort of really building deep and trusted relationships. So um, there are formal mechanisms for you know bilateral engagement in terms of you know what would we do in the event of a crisis and um, with countries that in our region suffer um, natural disasters that happens as a matter of course it's really important to have those mechanisms in place so everybody knows what to do it's why you have MOUs and bilateral agreements so that everyone knows what's going to happen in the event of a crisis but then you also have to have the people to people networks that's what's actually really important in terms of getting the job done yeah okay cool Thank you so much for telling me about your experience in Vanuatu dealing with those two particular crises. I'm aware that you have some experience living in Afghanistan during a period of intense conflict. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about your experience there and what that was like? Yes, I can. So I was posted to Afghanistan um, 2013 to 2014. I made a choice to go to Afghanistan during the presidential election because I really like elections and election monitoring and um, watching the way that different parties um, engage with the local community and then the aftermath of the of the voting. I, I 
believe in democracy and I think elections are the best way that people have the opportunity to exercise Could their <laughs> democratic rights. So I've always been fascinated with elections and I made the choice that if I was going to go somewhere really difficult, then I wanted to have that experience. Mm. So that's the time that I was there. Working in a war zone has unique characteristics. The baseline working in a war zone is different to the baseline of working anywhere else. There is high levels of stress because you are constantly exposed to danger and uncertainty. Your adrenaline levels are consistently higher because you're always at the risk of attack. Um, There is often limited access to basic necessities and and there are challenges in finding daily needs. So what we take for granted here in Australia, things like fresh milk, fresh meat, fresh vegetables, uh, are more difficult to find there, particularly if you're living in a in a space with restricted movements. Um, and, and that's another factor, right? So restricted movements um, are a constant because of the security concerns and often you're working long hours and you've got a high workload. Um, and this can really lead to physical and emotional exhaustion. Mm. And this is on top of the usual experience of living abroad where you've got cultural and language barriers and maybe there's some complex ways of working with other organisations and and other countries. And then on top of all of this, as if that's not enough, <laughs> working in a war zone means that you are really witnessing human suffering and trauma. And that takes its toll on people differently, but it takes its toll on everyone. And I know I'm painting a picture of a very challenging environment, but despite these challenges, there really is a sense of purpose and fulfilment that comes from working in these sorts of places because I think you feel immediately the positive impact that you are having in a crisis-affected region and you build bonds with your peers and the locals and uh, and other uh, government officials that sometimes last a lifetime mm. because of the nature of the camaraderie of those spaces. So that's what it's like mm. to be there. Right. So I was just thinking back to what you said earlier about the four kind of aspects of crisis management theory, preparation, coordination, action, recovery. I'm assuming that because there's so many different things going on in a war zone that you're kind of doing that all the time for like however many different things that could possibly go wrong. Um, how do you kind of manage that? I, I guess it kind of goes to the same question that I asked you earlier about. You kind of just you kind of just do. You um, just do, yeah. But yeah, like what what is that sort of process like of having to think about that constantly? I know you said it was mentally and physically exhaust, exhausting, and also to that point, like what is the government response or rec- do they even recognise that as an issue? And how is that even managed at an institutional level? Yeah. So, sorry for the, all those questions. Oh, but there's yeah, a, there's a lot there. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. I'll start with the last one. Um, yes, the government recognises that this is mm. an issue. And so because of that, it has very special working arrangements for um, for diplomats um, and, and others working in war zone or warlike environments. It has different um, – uh, it has rotation arrangements. So rather than living in that country on a full-time basis, you will do a fly-in, fly-out arrangement where you're there for a period of time and then you you are required to take decompression leave because of the recognition that it is a really hard Mm. um, place to live in and that it does take its toll and people's welfare and emotional well-being needs to be looked after. So, yes, it is treated differently. So in terms of that's what the general baseline level of of 
um, feeling is during the war zone. Can you speak about any specific instances, the uh, crises that you dealt with while you were there? Yes, there were lots of events. It was pretty constant. Um, And it's hard to pinpoint just one because you are under constant attack. But there are a couple that come to mind um, that have stayed with me. So I arrived in Afghanistan in August of 2013. And in the months prior to that, there had been a string of attacks. So Kabul International Airport, the Presidential Palace and the Supreme Court had all been attacked. And the Supreme Court attack uh, resulted in the death of 16 people. So it was really serious stuff. The first six months for me were pretty intense and it was a real it was a real culture shock in terms of you know the amount of as you said you talked about information earlier the amount of information that you're taking in all the time and having to process on constantly and so it was about building resilience to that new baseline but it was very commonplace to be in the embassy or to be at home in your accommodation and for the uh, attack siren to go off Mm, and um, Everybody knows what that sounds like. Um, you're kind of trained in it and you get your body armour and you get your helmet and then you head down to a fortified basement area and you take your laptop because everybody knows that during the attacks the Taliban like to post things on Twitter to wow. either claim responsibility or otherwise. So yeah. it became quite normal to have these sorts of events happen. But there's two key events that I remember. So in January of 2014, about um, six months after I got there, there was an attack on a restaurant called La Taverna. And this was a really popular restaurant with foreigners. I myself had been there a number of times. And this was because prior to this attack, the ability, even though movements were restricted, there was still some ability to move around um, with a security team, of course, in order to be able to to meet with people and to you know build your diplomatic network. Um, but this event really changed the security settings for foreigners in particular in Kabul. And that's because this venue, La Taverna, albeit popular, it was popular because it was really heavily fortified. Um, there were guards at the door. It was considered a relatively safe venue. In this event, 21 people died eight Afghans and 13 foreigners from all around the world. And included in this was the head of the Afghan office of the International Monetary Fund. And I think that really made people feel unsafe in a way that they hadn't before. That there were no places that you could go to Mm. despite them being fortified, despite them having security guards, and that you could be safe. So that forced most organisations to really rethink security in Kabul and everyone, including the Australian High Commission, really contained staff movements to a very few locations considered safe and most of these were quote-unquote green zone spaces, so military bases or or other embassies. Mm. But one of these venues that was considered safe was the Serena Hotel It had vehicle gates, a fortified perimeter, it had armed guards and in fact it was the venue where the Australian embassy operated out of when it first went to Afghanistan because it Mm. didn't yet have its own property, its own own building. So it was considered very, very safe. I had a very personal experience in relation to this attack because I had scheduled 
a dinner there with a diplomatic contact from the High Peace Council and we picked a date. It was the 20th of March and I remember that because I later realised that that date that I'd picked was um, the Persian New Year, now Ruse. And I thought, oh, I don't know how I feel about going to this place. There's probably going to be people celebrating. It feels a bit risky. I'm just going to change the date. Mm. And so I did. And what happened was that the morning of the 20th of March, four teenage militants smuggled weapons in their shoes and socks into the hotel and they hid inside the hotel over the course of the day and then they came out at the dinner service as people were celebrating the Persian New Year and they opened fire on the restaurant. And in that attack, nine people died, including a New Zealander and a Canadian. So I consider myself extremely mm. lucky to not have been there and to have made that choice. And I think here, for me, the, the lesson, there's a number of lessons, but really it's about intuition. And I think in the case of crisis management, it's very easy to just go, go, go. It's really important, I think, to really trust your intuition and, and really think about whether or not something is worth doing. And if you are feeling like mm, this feels a bit risky, then just don't do it. Hmm. Wow. So in terms of the differences between each of those crises, how did they differ and do you think that there is anything that you transfer from each of them or any, any underlying threads that kind of permeate through? Yeah, they are all crisis situations but they are all very different the nature of the crisis itself clearly is very different you know you've got a natural disaster which is predictable to some extent and so you've usually got a lead time to be able to plan and prepare you have a consular crisis which is very unexpected and it catches you off guard and you've got to kind of spring into action and then my experience in, Af in Afghanistan you know in a crisis within a crisis it is a kind of momentary escalation of already heightened conflict. It's already chaotic, it's already challenging and so you're really having to dig deep to, to really deal with those situations and respond and then kind of get back to a baseline normal. So there's a number of areas in which that they're different. So the, the amount of time that you have to prepare is, is different. But also the scope and the scale of the crisis differs. So a natural disaster, the scope and scale can be quite extensive. We're talking about usually a, a large region, in some cases a whole country. A consular case is possibly usually contained and involves a specific group. Um, and while it's less extensive, it's usually more urgent. There's also differences in terms of the uh, stakeholders and the external factors that you have to think about in terms of your response. So in a, in a war zone environment, you, you're adding in all of these additional stakeholders that you wouldn't normally see in the other examples. So you're thinking about um, the military and security forces and humanitarian organisations and, and peacekeeping organisations. You're not usually thinking about those in the other types of events consular case is is more focused on bilateral consular and diplomatic efforts uh, natural disaster you're involving usually other um, governments you're involving possibly NGOs or or international organizations that are going to help in terms of the response and recovery and the final way I think in which all of these are different is, is in terms of the long-term implications so a natural disaster will have long-term implications on the whole 
of economy, on the infrastructure, on livelihoods, on the communities over the longer term. A consular case might be isolated, usually is isolated. In some cases you have some diplomatic or political elements that you need to address over a longer period of time, particularly in the case of a politically charged uh, detention, for example. Mm. Um, And then a war zone crisis might have some more complicated long-term implications in terms of the peace efforts and just a prolonged overall crisis. So they, they... are all crisis events mm. and those four elements are the same. You can you can use them all in, in all of these examples, but there are definitely differences. I will add there is the one constant that I mentioned earlier. So in addition to those phases of preparation, coordination, action and recovery, I think there is a constant, in my opinion, that needs to that, – that you should be mindful of in any crisis event and that is – Empathy, compassion and transparency. That's about how you approach it, not what you do. At the end of the day, crises are about people and it's about people when they are feeling at their most vulnerable and your crisis respondents might also be feeling quite vulnerable. So it's really important, I think, to understand the concerns and emotions of not only those who are affected but also those who are doing the response and for you as a crisis leader to be aware of your words and your actions and the way that you are communicating. And I think it's really important to be open and honest and we've seen through some very high-profile crises recently that concealing or downplaying information is just going to lead to further damage to your reputation and to the trust that the community has in you. Mm. I want to linger on that idea of leadership to finish this off as, as I know that the, the time is, is, is getting there. What have your experiences in general taught you about leadership and what a leader is and, and whatnot? And, and how do you become a leader, I guess? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think you do become a leader. You don't learn leadership through osmosis in a time of tragedy. You have to have a lot of self-awareness and understand what skills do you bring, where are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, what do you value. I think a leader's dominant style really comes through in a crisis and while you don't want to go against your strengths or your dominant style, I think you do want to know where you might need to build your skills in other areas. So you might be a really good planner, but you might be less good at action or you might be really good at action, but then you, but then when the crisis is over, you walk away, you're not so good at mm. the recovery, you know, and building that resilience. So I think it's just reflecting on that and, and understanding um, how you can become more well-rounded and also how you can uh, collate a leadership team mm. that highlights all of these strengths so that you are as a team well-rounded. It doesn't have to be all about you as an individual. You should bring other people to this. You're not going to be able to deal with this all on your own. What has been your experience with like simulating crises? What we do here at the ASS is heavily tied to getting delegates in, simulating crises and whatnot. Have you had any experience with this in your career? Have these experiences been useful? And if so, in what ways? My first experience with crisis simulation was actually at university. So just like your delegates, a long time ago though. So uh, we're talking about the late 90s. 
I did a unit in Middle Eastern politics and we had all of the students play roles in a uh, international uh, – it was like a mock UN. Mm. And um, I went into that really a bit naive actually because – the professor kept leaking information, <laughs> right? We'd be having these private dialogues between the role play- ourselves as role players and, and yeah. the professor would leak this information out to this, <laughs> to this body yeah. and create all sorts of chaos. And I was really annoyed at the time, but on reflection I feel it really served me well because what he was trying to show us was that you never really have full control. Mm. Um, and this is the point that he was trying to mm. make by 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 leaking our private emails. Mm. Plus also that actually happens in the real world. Professionally, yes, lots of experience in crisis simulations and it really is about being prepared and training for events. So I think we can all think of why crisis simulations are beneficial. It helps you to test your processes and, and systems. It helps you identify the gaps and weaknesses in your response plan. But from a personal perspective, what I think is really valuable about this is that it helps you build your decision-making under pressure. I think you become more strategic and calculated in approach uh, in your approach to crisis management. And it really helps to build your confidence. So that's important because confident responders are more likely to perform well under pressure and more likely to stay cool in an actual crisis. Mm. With that in mind, do you have any specific lessons or things to look out for for our delegates while they're going through the summit? Mm. Yeah. Let me share with you what I look for Mm. in people for crisis response teams, the best team members in my experience, the kind of people I want in a crisis. They are people who can stay calm and composed, but they understand the urgency and the criticality of the time frame and the issue that you're dealing with. They are adaptable and they will pitch in where needed, but they also understand their role and can adhere to protocol and they won't create conflict with others. Um, they are quick decision makers and they're problem solvers and they take the initiative, but they're also going to communicate with you very clearly about what they're doing and they're going to keep everyone informed. So I realise these are almost you know, dual yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, characteristics yeah, that I'm presenting here, but that's what it's like. You have to really walk a fine line when you're in this kind of situation. It's not an either or, it's you being adaptable and, mm. and knowing what skill or what capability you need to, or what characteristic you need to bring to the table at that moment in time. I think if I can offer delegates any concrete piece of advice, it's to speak up. So if you see something that doesn't fit or you see someone make a decision that you really feel hasn't taken into account the full breadth of information that's available to you, then say something. It helps no one for you to stay quiet in that moment. And then the other piece of advice that I'll give, which I'm sure all your delegates are going to do anyway, is just maintain your ethics. Mm. So at all times, do act in a way that is going to prioritise the well-being of those that are being affected by the crisis. Fantastic. Might end off there, but before we do, in typical ACSS fashion, I'm going to ask you for some recommendations for must-reads, must-watches and must-listens if you have any. 
any or all will be accepted. Jackson, I did my homework. Uh, I did have a look um, and have a think about what I would recommend. So I've got a few for you. I would like to recommend um, three different films for three different purposes. So to get a feel for what crisis looks like in action, what it feels like to be in a heightened stress environment, to deal with ambiguity and obstacles – an oldie but a goodie, uh, Apollo 13. It is about real life events related to uh, the Apollo 13 mission back in the 19 back in 1970, and it portrays how the NASA team on the ground and then the team up in space really work together to resolve the crisis. I won't tell you how it ends. Yeah. If memories of COVID aren't too real for your listeners, and they're able to kind of you know handle a, a, a story about a pandemic then the 2011 film Contagion is actually quite good from a crisis management perspective because even though the the illness is dramatised and I think the, the spread, I think they call it the R-naught, mm. the spread factor is quite high, the way that they depict the spread of a virus globally and the way that the emergency services teams respond to that crisis I think is actually quite credible Mm. so that's a good one and the last one is is more because I personally really like political satire and I can't give a recommendation that doesn't include a political satire film Uh, Wag the Dog from 1997 with uh, Dustin Hoffman and Robert Nero is in my opinion a must watch for anyone that likes um, politics and crisis management it is a dark um, comedy in which the characters create a fake war to distract the public um, and the media because there's been a presidential sex scandal um, during a re-election campaign. And the reason why I think this film is really topical right now is because we're having a lot of conversations about fake news and disinformation and this film really goes into those topics of media manipulation and the creation of illusion and, and questions, well, what is truth? And I think this film is important because during the summit, your delegates are going to have to ask themselves, what is the veracity of the information that I'm receiving? Mm. Is it credible? Is it reliable? Is it accurate? And is it objective? And I think this film helps you have a little bit of imagination about the possibility that things might not be as they seem. Read, I'm going to offer the book uh, Leadership in the Eye of the Storm by Bill And the reason I'm offering this book is because it's very practical with real life examples, but it really talks about what I believe is important in crisis management, and that is putting your people first. And it offers practical ways to do that. And listen, well, of course, your delegates have to listen to the rest of the ACSS series uh, ahead of the summit. Of course, perfect. All right, well, thank you so much for coming on. We might end it there. Mike Tapia, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure, Jackson. Thank you for having me.